Good morning, and thank you, Tom. And thank you for inviting me. Um, I wanted to start off just by telling an incident that happened in my office a few years back. So a 16-year-old young woman came with her mother to be evaluated. She was complaining of not feeling herself, feeling down, loss of interest in usual activities. Um, you know, and she had actually been the one who requested being evaluated. Um, and after speaking with her and hearing from her how she was bored most of the time, it was hard for her to be alone, you know, I talked to her mother. Her mother said, but, you know, she, when she's with her friends, she's okay, and she seems all right, and she does normal uh, teenage stuff. And I tried to explain to the mother that, she, you know, her daughter really was depressed and needed treatment. And the mother said, absolutely not. Told me I didn't know what I was talking about, um, and really refused treatment at that time, um, which was, you know, certainly made me feel somewhat helpless. Now, why am I telling you this story? I mean, thankfully, this is the only time I couldn't convince a parent that the kid had a problem. Um, but the idea of feeling of a feeling helpless is, I think, going to be part of the theme we talk about this morning. But B also. If that parent's reaction is generally a typical reaction when we talk about teenage depression. Because it doesn't, when we talk about it, it doesn't look like adult depression. It, and people have a hard time understanding, recognizing it, and really recognizing what it is and that it exists. Um, you might, you might go back. Oh, there we go. Okay. Um, so when we talk about adolescent depression, the signs and the symptoms, right? We see both emotional changes, feelings of sadness, a lot, but also very often you're not going to get the same stuff with an adult. When I see depression, I expect to see somebody who's going to tell me how sad they are. Teenagers don't always tell me how sad they are. Sometimes they just get irritable, they get angry, they're much short-tempered. They, but, they also, but they do have that sort of loss of interest in their usual activities. They're not going to play ball the way they used to. They're not going out with their friends. Um, there's feelings of worthlessness. A lot of sensitivity to rejection or any type of criticism at all. Um, and, you know, difficulty, very often they have school problems, difficulty thinking and focusing. Feelings of hopelessness, okay? That the future just is really empty for them. And thoughts of death, dying, and suicide, as we'll get to later. Um, in terms of behavioral changes, um, hardness, loss of energy, insomnia, uh, changes in appetite, sometimes eating more or eating less, use of alcohol or drugs, certainly, as we know, is a big issue, um, the idea of agitation or restlessness, that they, they're usually much calmer now, they just can't even sit still. The things we mentioned already about affecting their thinking, complaints of, um, you know, very often sometimes you just get a lot of complaints. I have one young woman now with complaints about nausea all the time, okay? Or it's just body pains, you know, that if she can't go to school because everything hurts too much. Um, and, you know, certainly affecting the performance of school or inability to really function well. Um, and sometimes they, they don't take care of themselves the same way. They're not, they don't want to shower, they're not, Get, you know, they're not taking care of their hair and so on and so forth. They just don't look the same. Um, and, you know, also what we have to watch for is just watching for 
either behaviors will change or we'll suddenly get in trouble, or they're doing risky behaviors. Um, uh, and certainly, we're really concerned about things like self-harm. Now, the statistics on teenage depression, about 20% of teens will experience depression before they reach adulthood, okay? And, you know, about 10 to 50% at any one time, we're talking about something that is not so uncommon. It really does happen. Kids get depressed, teenagers get depressed. These things are, unfortunately, much more common than we realize, and often go unnoticed and very unfortunately, very often untreated. Um, you know. The okay. who um, I am, who I really am, okay. is someone who's going to be depression. I have for the last six years of my life, and I continue to do every day. Now, for someone who has never experienced depression or doesn't really know what that means, I might surprise them to hear because there's a pretty popular misconception that depression it is just being sad when something in your life goes wrong. When you break up with your girlfriend, when you lose a loved one, when you don't get the job you wanted. But that's sadness. That's a natural thing. That's a natural emotion. Real depression isn't being sad when something in your life goes wrong. Real depression is being sad when everything in your life is going right. That's real depression. To be totally honest, that's hard for me to stand up here and say. It's hard for me to talk about her. And it seems to be hard for everyone to talk about it, so much so that no one's talking about it. And no one's talking about depression that we need to be, because right now it's a massive problem. It's a massive problem. But we don't see it on social media, right? We don't see it on Facebook. We don't see it on Twitter. We don't see it on the news, because it's not happy. It's not fun. It's not light. So because we don't see it, we don't see the severity of it. Okay. Um, that was Kevin Real, who was 19 when he made that TED talk. Okay. And it really gives you a sense of what it's like. And he goes on to talk about the hardest thing about being depressed is the stigma about it. Okay. Is that, you know, the idea of feeling like there's something that's wrong with me as a person because I'm weak. Or, you know, I can't handle this and I should be able to do this on my own and take care of myself. And the fact is, is that we don't talk about it. Um, you know, I was listening to another talk recently, reminded me of a case of mine where I had a uh, husband and wife come in and he brought his wife in because she had a completely young grown couple from out of New York. Um, and I treated her for a little while, and like the third time I saw, you know, they were there, he asked to speak to me alone, and mentioned to me that he had depression for which he was being treated, but was too embarrassed to tell his wife. Um, and you'd be amazed how frequently I have couples who don't want to share with their spouse, okay, their own treatment, because they don't think it would be understood, okay. So, let's just look at some of the differences we started to mention. Okay? That they really can look very different, teenage depression. Again, the irritable or angry mood that we mentioned as opposed to just being sad. The extreme sensitivity criticism. Um, in adults, it's more of, you know, just sort of the sadness and lack of response. The withdrawing from some but not Very often, it's very hard to see a kid as depressed because they're with their friends, they look totally normal. Nothing seems to have changed. And all of a sudden, as soon as they're, they're back alone, they're just 
They don't want to do anything. They're feeling chronically bored. Very often, teenagers do not complain of that they're depressed. They don't use that language. They don't talk about sins. They talk about boredom. Um, and also, as we mentioned already, aches and pains. Um, talking about problems at school, there also could be issues in terms of running away. Uh, internet addiction has become a, a big escape sometimes for kids with depression. Um, we mentioned reckless behavior. Um, occasionally, kids who, you know, violence can come sometimes not just with kids who have ADHD and with conduct disorder, but with kids who are also either severely anxious or depressed. Um, and it's also associated with eating disorders, self-injury, that we will talk about a drop more later. Um, depression, unfortunately, is a major risk factor for suicide. And we wanted to talk today also mention about treating, you know, the depression really treats, you know, this major risk factor. Um, you know, I had mentioned to the focus, there's a famous incident, you know, all the medications, you know, uh, back in 2003, most of the antidepressants got a black box warning because everybody was very concerned that they did this meta-study of all the studies on kids, they found a, a 1% on average incidence of suicidal ideation, of thoughts of suicide. Um, now, there, there were no actual suicide attempts or, you know, completions in all these, in these four to five thousand kids in all these studies, but, you know, FDA got very concerned, but on this warning. Unfortunately, as a result of this warning, since most of this medication is given by non-psychiatrists, by pediatricians and internists and family practitioners, um, in the following year, the use of antidepressants in kids um, dropped significantly. What did go up was the suicide rate. Because when you don't treat depression, suicide increases. Um, so, you know, not, you know, the, sometimes being too careful about one thing, you know, the common thing leads to cool and something else. Um, suicide is the second leading cause of death, okay, in ages 10 to 24. Um, and for, you know, college age youth. Um, and as you see, more teenagers and young adults start from suicide than from cancer, heart disease, AIDS, birth defects, stroke, pneumonia, influenza, chronic lung disease combined. Okay. It is a real problem. And it's a real symptom very often of depression. Um, and so I don't want to spend, since we have very limited time, um, the suicide warning signs, okay? So people realize when kids talk about, right, that, you know, I could be better off dead, I won't be with you as long as 80%, you know, of young adults who commit suicide talk about it before they do it. Okay? It's not always such a secret. Okay? Um, and, you know, they talk about, you know, how hard it is to be alive. Okay? Um, the, you know, and sometimes, especially now, it can be in social media, and they'll put it on their Facebook or a little text message or a little Twitter to people. Um, you know, when they romanticize dying, or they write stories about it, or they do great, you know, dangerous behaviors that are really risky, um, or they talk about giving away possessions or saying goodbye, etc. Um, these type of things. 
we certainly want to look at the intensity and the frequency of what's going on, whether they have a plan or don't have a plan. You do a suicide evaluation, you talk about, you know, is there a plan, you try to contract with, you know, we'll make an appointment, I'll see you next week, I want to make sure you're going to be safe, you're going to be here. That certainly helps a little bit. Unfortunately, our suicide, professional suicide evaluations are not really that effective. Okay, we're not so good at predicting. Um, and that unfortunately is the reality. Um, <laughs> so one thing that is important though is the available the availability of lethal methods. Um, this is one of the things that people talk about with gun control because if guns are available, the chance that your suicide is going to be successful is much higher. Okay? Because when you use a gun, it's very lethal. People use pills. Okay, so hopefully, you know, people don't realize, I mean, Tylenol is a lot more lethal than, let's say, aspirin or ibuprofen, um, or probably most of the medications in the cabinet. Um, but, you know, having a lethal method, because most people, and very often after, you know, after the suicide attempt, remember, go from call 911 or call somebody and realize they made a mistake. Unfortunately, sometimes it's just too late. Um, so, the the things we certainly want to look for are, you know, mood disorders, as we talked about, um, not just depression, bipolar disorders, conduct disorder, substance abuse. Substance abuse clearly increases the risk. Um, you know, anxiety disorders, with very often come along with mood disorders, unclear how much they're alone doing it, but living with severe anxiety can be very difficult and painful. Um, Clearly, eating disorders, um, you know, very often have a high rate, sort of also a very high rate of suicide. Um, Thomas Joyner in Florida, one of the researchers in suicide, has a whole theory about this, you know, that really it's very hard to commit suicide. The fear of dying is a natural, overwhelming fear that some person has to overcome in order to commit suicide. And in order to overcome that, you know, that fear, okay, um, is generally takes it's not courage, it's very difficult. But people who are, you know, who have an eating disorder, who starve themselves, who have less fear of bodily harm, or people who cut themselves frequently and have this overcome somewhat of this fear of bodily harm. Um, he feels that that's often the reason that it's easier for them to actually commit suicide. Um, the psychological aspects, we spoke of, go back to this whole idea of hopelessness and helplessness. The idea that there is no future for me, that nothing is going to help me. Very often, suicide is a result of people who've had depression for an extended period of time and feel really hopeless about that this is the best of life. But when you depress like that, the negative seems like the reality. You know, have a little sign in the office that says, don't believe everything you think. Um, the thoughts, the negative thoughts are so overwhelming. And the belief system is really that one very often of, you know, the world would be better off without me. Um, impulsivity and aggression certainly correlate somewhat, you know, with suicidal behavior. 
uh, but especially with mood disorder. But that doesn't mean that suicide, say, is an, in, you know, done on an impulse. Suicides generally are thought about by the while and planned out in advance. Um, and certainly people who, and it's very often people who just don't feel they fit in, don't feel they have a place, okay? And it certainly is higher um, in, you know, the, the homosexual population, et cetera. Um, you know, so again, they talk about it in advance. If we learn how to respond, okay, we really can make a difference. So some of the myths, okay, People talk about suicide won't really do it. No, and that's false. Most of them talk about it, okay, in advance and do plan to do it. Yeah, are the people who talk about suicide and really are just attention seeking? Yes. Um, but we take it very seriously when someone talks about suicide. We don't assume that it's all attention seeking. Um, you know, talking about suicide may give someone the idea. You don't give anybody the idea of killing themselves, okay? That's not how we get the idea. That comes from this internal feeling of worthlessness and hopelessness. Okay? Talking about it can really only help. Uh, you know, and you know, we all really can help. You know? Um, you know, people who with suicide attempts are just trying to get attention, okay? No, most people actually when they do this, you know, when they make suicide attempt, they're very serious about it. Um, you know, the how much they really want to die is certainly varies, um, but sometimes people who aren't, you know, don't think that serious, unfortunately their attempts are successful. Um, you know, the, the fact is, is that suicide is much more common than we realize even in our own community. I mean, I've been living in the five towns now for about 17 years. Off the top of my head, I can think of three young adult suicides in that time. They're never advertised as suicides, of course. You know, somebody can wake up, somebody fell, somebody, you know, their accidents, uh, etc. Um, but you know, if, if you think of the statistics of sudden death in the young adult population, which was like four to eight per per million, um, even one death in fifteen years would be above the average uh, in that population. You know, in that size of population. So uh, unfortunately, it, it happens, and we have a role in it. Um, again, suicide and act of cowardice. No, as we talked about, it takes a lot of courage to overcome this great fear. And it's not as a selfishness, because they really believe that everybody else would be better, better off without them. You know, it reminds me of the passage from Yonah, right? Towards the end of Yonah, he talks about quote Mosi Mikhaya. Right? Yonah was despondent about the situation, and the different Russian had to understandings of why he was so feeling so despondent, but basically that as soon as we can get to the point of feeling that we're better off without us. Okay? Um, and the final myth is that a person determined to kill himself, nothing can be done to stop them. No, even the most severely depressed person, we really can intervene. And we really have a role in intervening. Um, we can help a friend or relative in distress. I remember a while back um, there was, you know, a boy in yeshiva who was, you know, talked to his friends and talked about how he was feeling. Um, and three of his friends came with him to my office for him to be seen, to make sure that he got there and he got taken care of. Um, so we can get involved. We have to learn how to listen. We have to make sure we get professional help. 
Uh, and that's where Dr. Feldman is now going to come in and really talk about what we can and should be looking for. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you to all the organizers. It's, it's an honor to be here. Um, especially to be following my, my friends of many, many years, uh, Reverend Dr. Holzer. Um, I think my attitude to the organizers is as, as a rabbi also. I usually talk about that. A couple of more points. Um, one is. Yeah. One is there's some research, it's, it's, um, I'm not sure if you say it is fact, but there was a large scale study that came out um, um, a number of years ago, the American Journal of Psychiatry, that found that Jewish men seem to be at approximately twice the risk for depression as the general population. So in the general population, the rate of depression of men towards women is for every uh, depressed man, there are two depressed women. In the Jewish population, the ratio is one to one, which is interesting. The reason this word sounds like the beginning of a bad joke, which I will not make, um, but um, we won't speculate on it. But probably the main reason is um, probably, um, as the authors of the American Journal of Psychiatry article say, it's certainly biologically driven. Jewish men have a much lower rate, for example, of um, alcohol and substance abuse. Not that that doesn't happen in our community, but relative to other communities, um, and, and authors speculate that one is tied to the other. I'm just saying this in terms of highlighting what, um, how important this all is in terms of um, what Dr. Uh, Holzer was talking about. Why am I spending a little bit of time talking about um, prevention before I talk about how to help a depressed person? Let me, some of you may have heard the Helm story, but the Psalm story is very important, I think, in terms of explaining why it's so important to talk about prevention. You all know that song, right? So, although I once told this story to a group of people in South Africa, and I don't know what made me say this. I had no idea, but some instinct. And I asked the people in the audience, how many of you have parents or grandparents who are from film? And about five people in the audience raised their hands. So I, I changed it to, uh,
okay? Um, when all we do in response to the very real problem of depression and suicide in our community is, is to focus on the hospital, which is very necessary, extremely necessary, to talk about early diagnosis and talk about early treatment and talk about uh, early ascertainment and, 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 and being able to figure out when a friend or a colleague or one of our children might be uh, depressed or suicidal. We also have to think about fixing the bridge. So let me spend, talk to you about three thoughts about bridge fixing, okay, in terms of prevention. Number one is based on the literature that shows that children and adolescents who are sort of have this negative cognitive style, they color everything dark, okay? Um, and they um, tend to become hopeless and distort, and they are at high risk of developing depression. It's likely to become more fixed in adolescence, and then sometimes to have a trajectory towards major depression, which if it goes untreated, there's risk of it being recurrent throughout one's life. Now, what do we know about what happens if we patch it early enough in terms of our focus here on fixing the bridge? So the, the idea is that um, one of the things from a practical standpoint, if you have a kid or you know somebody who has one of these really pessimistic styles, okay, it doesn't mean right away that you have to immediately insist that they go into therapy, but one of the things to think about from a prevention standpoint is a very well-known study, some of you may know, know that it's written in a... Um, a classic book called Optimistic Child by Martin Seligman, professor of clinical psychology at Penn, who found in a large-scale study done in the suburbs of Philadelphia, where he found these subsyndromal kids, these kids who weren't fully depressed or were at risk for depression, either because they had this really pessimistic, depressive style, or because they had parents who were depressed, and he did a program for them and for their parents, teaching them how to catch their depressed thoughts, teaching them how not to get sucked into the quicksand of depression. And what he found was it really made a difference. What he did was describe in great detail in the optimistic child is he literally changed the trajectory of their lives, the ultimate bridge fixing, in terms of teaching them how to think in a less depressed way, in a less pessimistic way. In terms of teaching their parents how to think in a more optimistic way, optimism can be taught, even to people who are pessimistic for a living, okay? So what he found in a very compelling way was you could really make a difference with this kind of early intervention. There have been a number of other similar studies that we may hear about a little bit later from some of the other speakers, but just to know about it, and if you have a kid like this, you may want to at least get the book, read it, think about it. The beauty of his treatment for these kids is he did in the whole school district, and he did, he did all these kids who were at risk, is probably one of the most effective components of it was that he was able to get the parents not only to work on their own pessimistic styles, but to model it in front of the children. So that's in terms of um, part one. Uh, 
The next is this amazing set of research over at Harvard by uh, Dr. Beardsley. And very elegant, I've heard him speak a number of times. It's really very, um, again, very practical. What he does is, based on the research that finds, that if a kid, child or adolescent, is growing up in a home, when one or both parents are depressed, that kid is at considerably greater risk for depression himself or herself. It says here, two to four times increased risk. And in a series of studies where he worked with these kids to prevent their end ending up being depressed, what he found was, and this is an incredibly simplistic, um, you know, narrowing down and parsing out what the core active ingredients were, when you think about it, it makes so much sense. The first thing that he did with these kids is just sit with them and teach them that even though your father may have taken to bed and he's in bed all the time, has nothing to do with you, and isn't being the kind of father that you wish he could be, it's more can't than won't. It's not because he's rejecting you, not because of something that you said or did or thought. It's because this is biology. And actually teach the kids about what's going on and what's going awry in terms of neurotransmitters and the neurobiology of it. And just that knowledge changes. The eye sees only what the mind knows. Once you have that knowledge, it changes the psychological experience for the kids. The other active ingredient in Beardsley's work is to not only help the children name the monster, but he also very actively pulls them into active kind of involvement and engagement in life, sometimes in helping others. No greater way to help a kid who's feeling depressed than to take him or her and put them into an active, real, involved relationship of helping people. The power of chesed is unbelievable as a preventative ingredient. But on top of that, the power of mentoring, we know, makes a difference. Our community has some amazing mentoring programs. And um, that's something else to think about. And the Beardley book, again, is when a parent is depressed, how to protect your children from the effects of depression in the family. Again, that's the second bridge-building bridge technique. And the final thing that I wanted to talk to you about on prevention is that uh, a little bit about that coincidence. Okay? Some of you may have heard me talk about this in other contexts, and I don't want to make too much of it. Down the block at Columbia, there's work done by Dr. Sonia Luther in the clinical psychology program there, and I just find it indicative in terms of the background music in our lives. Again, not a super large-scale study. I think it was a couple of hundred kids in, um, in is anybody here from Starsdale? What do you say? A couple hundred kids from Wilmot. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> so what they looked at is actually in stars now. And what Dr. Luther found is that she compared them to kids on the other side of the tracks. Not kids living in severe poverty, but kids, lower socioeconomic kids who didn't have much in the way of resources. And she expected to prove that money buys protection from mental illness. And was sort of shocked to find somewhere in the area of triple the, the rate of depression, anxiety, and alcohol and substance abuse in the rich kids. That's where the word affluenza comes from. That these kids were at greater risk than kids who had nowhere near the financial resources in their families. Then she did another series of studies where she deconstructed 
what were the active ingredients behind influenza? And she found three ingredients that the parents in this room, anybody in this room, can think about in terms of bridge building, okay? Number one, she found it's never enough just to be average in one of the wealthy neighborhoods that she was studying, right? We don't, when's the last time somebody came to Shoal and bragged, oh, my kid just got in the 50th percentile on the SATs, okay? You know, we don't brag about average MCAT scores or SAT scores or whatever other kind of, you know, we don't brag about our kids getting into community college. And that's so, that's so difficult. We brag about getting to Hawaii, that was it. <laughs> Um, so that's, that's, that's the first thing she found, this is that we have to figure out a way to protect kids from depression. That's a little bit of a jump, but it's one of the ways of thinking about it. So we have to figure out a way to have them cue into their uniqueness. Second active ingredient she found was the ingredient of chesed, like I was talking about before. She found the kids in this wealthy neighborhood often took without giving. There was the Magiyali, it's coming to me kind of approach to life. And that's not so terrific, okay? You have to, in order to be protected from problems like depression and anxiety, you have to be able to give back. Sure, they did service learning, but the research on service learning shows that the only reason you're doing it is not the schma, is to get into a good college, doesn't count. But if you're doing it in a real vital way, and you're part of an active community of understand the palindrome of the not new or not time, and you give you get back, that's actually an important antidote. And the, the final part was time. Parents were there, but often not there. Parents are often outsourcing their parenting. The kids had a million after school activities. Parents, even when they were around, were often looking down at their iPhones. Um, again, I don't want to overgeneralize at all, but all the new research is showing is try as it sounds, quality time really matters, really being there really matters. Um, Moshe C. Weinberg here has talked about quoting Balshemto about the importance of the Avadatem Nehera. But we have to understand he was quoting the Balshemto actually, who said that when we say in Shema, the two words, the Avadatem Nehera, one of the ways of understanding it is get rid of the rush in your life. Okay? That's important in terms of this risk factor also. In order for kids to really feel vitally connected to family and community, you have to really be there with them. Let me um, start to come to the end of my um, talk. Uh, just a couple of things on how to help the press person. A lot of this is very obvious. Okay? Most important thing you can do, obviously, as we heard from Dr. Holzer, is identifying and treating, offering emotional support, obviously not ignoring remarks about suicide, um, encouraging, this is important, activity planning. The research finds, there's some fascinating stuff that finds, that almost as helpful as any more traditional intervention, like certain kinds of therapy, like cognitive behavioral therapy or interpersonal therapy, or, of course, psychopharmacology, um, activity planning is extremely helpful. Not in isolation, that means just getting people to do one thing a day that gives them mastery, gives them pleasure, even though they're faking it. That we talk shalolishma, the old akarapulos and shakalbos. After our hearts are drawn by our actions. And it's very, and very often, these family members to try to actively get them involved 
in terms of uh, what it says here. By the way, um, I know this is frustrating because I'm going, we're both going quickly through this. I will post this on, um, you just Google one word. Don't Google my whole name. Google D-Pelcovitz, D-P-E-L-C-O-V-I-T-Z, and the first hit are D-Pelcovitz Google pages, or Google sites, that's what it's called, I think. And the first hit will be the web page, and I'll post this under why do medical ethics depression or something like that on um, under new lectures. And if I have permission, we'll, can I and I'll attach Dr. Holzer's lecture in front of it. So you'll get both lectures, um, so you don't have to pay attention to another word. Okay, <laughs> so, okay. let's keep going. Um, not use the depressed person of faking illness or laziness or respect him or her to snap out of it. Eventually, with treatment, most people do get better. That's the only thing. The idea of hope with depression is so important. Um, the Hebrew word tikva, if you look it up in certain Hebrew English dictionaries, you know what else it means? It means a rope or a, um, a cord, which I never understood, but then when you think about it, embedded in that word, the word tikva is kav. It's sort of like it's the connection. It's the line. It's like you're not alone. You're not alone. Um, so I think that's an important thing to think about in terms of hope is an incredibly important component of healing. And to convey that to people who are suffering with this and to educate their friends, as Dr. Holzer was saying, it's not, you're not ragging them at, it's not a betrayal, it's heroic to go for, to go to uh, trusted adults to get help for the depressed kids. And also, just it's sometimes very trying to have to be the parent of the depressed adolescents. And when you go from, anytime you go psychologically from won't to can't, meaning, okay, this is my kid's wiring. He, just, he or she just can't. It makes, it, makes all, it makes all the difference in the world. Let me end. I, I have a drop on suicide depression, suicide. I'm just going to quickly, I'm going to make two points, okay? Because I'm, I'm at the end of my time. I, I, I just got the, uh, you know, the, the, the warning. Um, Bryson Smuffos. Bryson Smuffos is exactly what the research team at Columbia found a number of years ago where they did psychological autopsies on every suicide in New York State in a given year. Dr. Maddie Gould and David Chaplin did this research. And it was fascinating to hear them talk about what happened just before completed suicide in New York State. And it was exactly what this Bryson said. So here, something happened with the son of Gorgas, who cut school. Was that amazing? You know, life doesn't change. Shabarakli based Sefer, and his father sort of like made a made a sign to him: "You're going to really get it. You know, the equivalent. You're, I'm really going to beat you up because of your cutting school. Okay." And the son was so frightened with his father that he threw himself, he killed himself by throwing himself into a pit, okay? And, and then halakhically they say, you, you know, mourning for that poor boy is so different than mourning for anybody who knows denying him full zero rights and Mateo's rights. Okay? He broke a, he broke a plate, okay? And again, was threatened, and the same kind of outcome, okay? Um, and again, the same kind of sock. And then the Mara famously says, the Bryson says, 
that this is one of the ways we know that in dealing with kids, we have to find a balance between motherliness, between smoldova and dimakaremas. So that's exactly what we know about suicide, and that's exactly what Gould and Schaffer found. So they say, kid wants to get into Harvard, he comes home, he sees that his SAT scores are lower than he had hoped, and means that he'll definitely not get into Harvard. So he calls all of his friends and his parents, he can't get a hold of anybody. And that point of unbelievable fear and despair, that's when he kills himself. In almost all the cases they find, if only there was a way that he could have gotten, or she could have gotten in many of the, in many of the situations, help, it would have made all the difference in the world. And just a second, a minute, and then I'll end with the story, okay? Here's just an example of how simple the bridge is, how simple um, prevention is, okay? So there's a wonderful program called Science of Suicide Program, which they find randomized clinical trials makes all the difference. And all it does is teach kids in, in an instinctual manner as that Heimlich maneuver is, uh, the following kind of thing. If you know that a kid is suicidal, act. Acknowledge the signs of suicide so that others display, take them seriously. So don't, don't pretend it's not happening. Don't look the other way. Haloma, which is the Doraisa that we're warning. You see somebody suffering, talking, talking, you have to stand with them. I remember a poem used to say, when you're Mekayim, that mitzvah Doraisa, of standing with them, you know why it's a mitzvah Doraisa? It's because you're Mekayim, the mitzvah of Hashavah Saveda, because you're returning to them their lost soul. Number two, let that person know that you care about him or her, Simple empathy goes a long, long way. You're not alone. I care about you. It may seem simplistic, but it's not in the research. And then tell responsible adults. So that's the ACT program. I think there's reference to it. And now I'll end with the story. Okay? Okay. So um, here's, here's the final story. Um, I was giving a talk in Baltimore. Okay? Is this offensive to the people from Jersey, or this is okay? <laughs> <laughs> you know, we're in the foot of the George Washington Bridge. Okay, so here, here's, here's the end. Um, I gave a talk in Baltimore. An eighth grade Rebbe, local school there, comes over to me, because I was talking about a somewhat similar topic, and he tells the following, and with this I'll sit down, and I'll have questions and answers. He said that he's been teaching eighth grade now for about 20 years. And every year, he buys a bunch of birthday cards. And when one of the students in his class who had been struggling in that grade has a birthday in the subsequent years, he sends, it just takes him a minute, he sends the birthday card saying, Dear Dusty, just to let you know I'm thinking of you. And he's been doing this with, you know, a handful, like five kids in every class for the last 20 years. He told me a week before he met me, he gets a call from a kid he had in eighth grade about 15 years earlier. And the kid says, Rebbe, you saved the life today. He says, what are you talking about? He said, you know I've been having a tough time. He said, you know that I never quite made it. You know the problems I grew up with. You had depression. It sounds like it sounds like you had a dysfunctional family. He said, I finally decided to end it all. I'm living in a one-room apartment, in a one-room studio. I just gave, gave up. And I go to the bathroom. I take a bunch of pills that I know will prove lethal. And I sit down on my bed, and I'm about to take a bunch of pills with a glass of water in one hand and pulls in the other, and I'm fully intending to end my life. 
And somehow, out of the corner of my eyes, I see a shelf in my apartment. And on that shelf are 15 birthday cards. The 15 cards that you sent me over the last 15 years. And I thought to myself, I matter! I matter to somebody! And ready, he says, I take the pills, I run to the bathroom, I flush them down the toilet, and I'm taking a solemn oath, I will never do that again. That, I think, is the bottom take-home message of what both Dr. Holzer and I have been talking about. Thank you, everyone. Oh, yeah. It's a good story. It's a true story. It's amazing. Thank you very much. Um, we'd like to open the floor to questions. Who's, who's taking the questions? Are we? They're, oh, they can ask. They'll figure it out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're yeah, it's working. Yeah. Okay. Um, huh? I just have a question. Yeah. Where do Rashi Yeshiva accounts in this? This is talking about parents. Uh, I will tell a personal experience. Unfortunately, it's not suicidal, but this caused a lot of disruption. Where uh, we went to a Rebbe, and we told the Rebbe that the son, that the, our son, in this case, felt very depressed because he didn't reach the knees of the other boys in the class. And the Rebbe said, "Well, he's right. He doesn't." That was the son's guy. He subsequently left that yeshiva, and but he had a lot of struggles afterwards. He felt very, very destroyed. And to a certain extent, even though I said philosophical, I can never talk to that Rebbe again. Yeah, I think that's such an important point, and I'll, I'll just take it because it's what we, the way I spend a big chunk of my professional career since I came here. We, we couldn't agree more. We, we had, it's, it's the reason I left the job that I love to come here, so I was sold on coming here by President Joel uh, 12 years ago, was, is because what we do now, and we do it pretty seriously, we have um, four courses in pastoral psychology, where we, we, we constantly review um, signs of depression and suicide in guys who are going for smicha. And you can't get smicha here without taking those four courses. We do role plays. We have actors come in who simulate depression of an adolescent or a kid or whatever. And then in Azrieli, also, we have, we have again, they're required courses. You can't graduate without understanding the basics of everything that we talked about this morning and hopefully more. And because of that, hopefully, I'm sure we're still going to graduate people who will not have the right dispositions and won't have the right level of empathy, but we're trying. In the non-YU world, uh, we're trying. There's a very uh, nice, innovative program that um, I was quite involved in um, last year, training mashkichim in the more Haredi world and Hasidish world where somebody actually pays them to come to get lectures from people like us, and um, then they get supervision from, from mental health professionals, and they're trying to see those yeshivas, because they see the same need you're talking about, with, um, with well-trained rebbeim who get the equivalent of about two full years of real um, training in mental health. They don't become mental health professionals because they know if they get a degree, they'll lose them. But um, it actually, um, the enthusiasm of these people is amazing. It's a drop in the bucket to what has to happen, but at least it's a start. And we, don't, we won't know until this year if it works, because they finally, the first full cohort is out there now, 
getting supervision, and maybe it'll make a difference. But we have a long way to go. That's a very important point. Yeah, yeah I'll just add, I mean, yes, in NYU, I mean, I, I speak every year for the SMIC program for the supplementary right. rabbinics on psychopharmacology and so forth. They really have, I mean, they put together a, a great program here so that I, I think the rabbin coming out of NYU are really coming out with a very different perspective. Thankfully, I think, you know, there are many, I talk to Menchanchem all the time. Um, sometimes I'm frustrated with them, uh, but they do listen. And, you know, generally, when you, I, I think getting a mental health professional involved with the school can often be very advantageous. Thank you for uh, You spoke about the Jewish rate of one-to-one. It would be interesting to look at the Korean and the Chinese society, which both of them are very, very pushy. Right, so, so comp- you need to compare yeah. the Asian cultures with, with the Jewish culture. That would, that would be it. I think it's been done, actually, um, in interesting ways, but I, I ha- we have to do a new... A new I, I be, I'll have to get back into the literature to look at it. If it hasn't been done, it should be done. Yeah, good point. <laughs> <laughs> Not touching that one. <laughs> Um, the okay um, hormonal treatment. Put it this way: there is something called um, uh, premenstrual dysphoric disorder uh, now in the DSM and our you know diagnostic manual, um, where clearly you know hormonal fluctuations can affect mood, um, and you know there you know the question of whether. Um, menopause, you know, postmenopausal increase in depressive symptoms, which yes, the lack of estrogen seems to. Um, but we're not certainly not treating young adults uh, with hormones generally, unless there's a a really, di- you know. There is not a lot out there in terms of understanding or research in terms of you know male hormones and mood. Um, as far as I know, uh, maybe Glenn knows differently. Um, at well, what we know about, about uh, pre-pubertal depression versus the ratio in general population is one to one, but puberty does make a change for right. And with girls, the the rate increases with with girls in puberty. Correct. Right. So that it's clearly yes, it's true, but we're not treating hormonally in terms of that. Um, that's, but clearly these, these issues, you know, you know the, the truth is, is that, um, you know, there, there is a lot we still need to know about this. Um, and there's a lot that the community has to know. There's a lot that doctors have to know because the majority of this is really seen by primary care physicians, uh, you know, by pediatricians, much more than we come, come psychiatrists is usually the last step. Um, where only a small percentage actually get there. 
Um, and we're lucky in New York to have a lot of child psychiatrists, whereas most of the country doesn't. Um, in fact, Nefesh this year in its conference is actually going to have a whole track to teach primary care physicians about behavioral disorders and so forth, you know, in our, our December conference over the weekend, in case for, you know, to, it's geared towards health professionals to really address this issue. I get this question all the time, unfortunately. Um, uh, it is a very tough question because once they're over 18, uh, especially, you know, the laws vary by state, but definitely in New York State and in most states, you really have no control. Um, but family intervention really can make a big difference. And there is some control because very often, you know, not only are our kids sometimes still financially dependent, um, but every child has some emotional connection and dependence with parents. We want our parents' approval, okay? Uh, that never really changes. And I will have parents who will bring their 20-somethings in to me, um, not necessarily happily, uh, but then they're going to have a lot of teens who come to me that are not necessarily happily coming, but thankfully most of them are feeling okay when they leave. Um, they're, they're really not upset about the experience. They're actually appreciated. So I think that you have to really, you know, talk to your kid and be very firm about the fact, I care about you, you're not doing well, you need help, I want you to get help, here's what we're going to do, okay? And go, go with them and take them by the hand. We actually did a study on Long Island a number of years ago you know, that, that we had published showing exactly the same thing with a fairly large number of adolescents in particular, showing like a direct linear correlation between adolescent suicidal ideation and attempts and level of physical violence at home. But then when you, when you have sexual abuse, the, the risk um, for suicide actually goes up a lot. Unfortunately, 
um, there have been um, that connection between uh, suicide, completed suicide, and, and sexual abuse, which Dr. Shulman knows better than just about anybody, because you've often been there in the immediate aftermath, is incredibly tragic. So, you know, this was, we didn't, we, we didn't do nearly a comprehensive enough job, but um, don't, you know, there are other um, causes that we didn't talk about. It's interesting that um, I didn't talk about that, because it's something that I spent most of my career focusing on. So thank, thank you for bringing that yeah, up. Yeah, I thank you for bringing it up. And I think, yes, it's true. We have to understand you're right. It's not always depression. There are many young adults and children who try to commit suicide. Um, and because of this sort of hopeless feeling they're in a position, and yes, the, the sexual abuse is, is certainly an, an issue and an unfortunate one. I'm sorry, we're going to have some questions at this point. Hopefully we'll be able to get a chance to ask Dr. Fawkins and Dr. Holzer questions in the 